please, would you pray with me now as we prepare our hearts to hear from God's Word. Our great God, who is so kind to provide for us such assurance of faith, we pray that you would take the faith that is here and strengthen it. Magnify your Son so that we may trust you more and delight in you more and worship you more. Amen. Now, as Christians, we shouldn't celebrate Christmas like everyone else does. Yes, it's, it's a time of great joy and gladness and fellowship and togetherness, but this time of year has a heavy, weighty significance to us. Matter of fact, I would suggest to you this morning that this time of year carries layers of significance and joy that are distinctly Christian. We don't celebrate this time of year with thanksgiving and worship and praise because the presents are so numerous. We don't worship our Savior this time of year because we love to spend time with family and friends. These are good things, joyful things, and often even edifying things. But this is not why we praise and worship our God this morning. This time of year is significant to us because in it we remember our great Creator God making Himself small, and taking upon himself the weakness of humanity, embracing, yes, gladly even embracing our creaturely weakness so that he might bring us to himself. That is what we celebrate this time of year. We celebrate a rescue mission of sorts, but a rescue mission of the most extraordinary variety. A rescue mission that came through a tiny infant in the womb of a mother. A rescue mission that saw itself in the weakness of a baby in a manger, but a rescue mission for our souls and for our worship this morning. That is why we celebrate this time of year. Now, my goal, my, my destination this morning, if you will, is and I want to show you why Jesus' birth and His life is so significant to the gospel message we proclaim and the worship that we lift up this very moment. I, I want to suggest to you that there are layers of significance that one could attach to our Lord's birth and His life. There are layers. We could examine the significance of our Savior's birth in multiple different ways and from multiple different angles. For example, we could examine it from an apologetic angle. We could examine it from a prophetic angle. We could examine it from a pastoral angle. Or we could examine it from an atonement, redemption, salvation angle. Now, we don't have time to 
exhaust all of these angles for sure, so I want to fly over some of them and land on our final one, the atonement angle, and why this is significant. And my argument this morning is essentially this, the birth and life of of our Lord Jesus Christ is significant. It's significant to the gospel message. That's my argument this morning. And I would even go further than that, and I will go further than that this morning. I want to argue to you that the birth and the full life of our Savior Jesus Christ is so significant to the gospel message that without it, are you ready for this? There'd be no gospel message. That's how significant the birth and life of our Savior is to the gospel. Without the birth and life of our Savior Jesus Christ, we have no gospel, no joy, and no worship this season. So, why did Christ have to be born? Why didn't, as perhaps a lot of Sunday school children Suggest Jesus just appear in full humanity on the cross at the very end and just die. Why not just, as perhaps some other forms of false forms of Christianity suggest, why not just atone spiritually for our sin in heaven somewhere and just tell us about it later? Why did our Savior have to come to this world and live a fully human life? Well, that's the destination. Uh, That is where I want to take us, to the answer to those questions. And and that is the question that I I ultimately want to answer for you today. Uh, But, like I said, there there are layers of significance to all of this. And, I mean, it just pains me to just pass them by, as I'm sure you know. And besides, and besides, I mean, you all, I mean, let's admit it, you came here expecting a Steve Swartz sermon You're expecting multiple points, so I can give you a few on a flyover as we kind of cruise past these other areas of significance as we make our way to the final one. And and finally, just a little personal note about myself, it's just not in my DNA to do destination vacations. I don't want to just race to the end and just answer the question. For those of you who don't know who I am, I grew up in a very large pastor's home in a very small town in Minnesota, and we grew up on a pastor's income. That's not a statement against uh, the church uh, at all. It's just that most churches are expecting you to have normal-sized families, and nine kids are way too big for any any pastor's income. I don't care who you are. Uh, Pastor's incomes are meant for, uh, you know, the 2.5 average. You know, that's a very happy pastor's income, except for the five kid. He never gets a good shake. But you know what that means though, right? When, when you are on an income like that, a large family, what kind of vacations do you do? You don't do destination vacations when you're on a pastor's income with a large family. You know, while all of my friends are piling into airplanes to go to Europe and Hawaii, I, with my family, am piling into my dad's 88 Oldsmobile Cutlass station wagon to go to South Dakota. That is just the way it is in a pastor's family, a road trip to South Dakota. Now, to be clear, the destination of this road trip was wonderful. 
You probably don't know about South Dakota because it's so small compared to what we have out here, but there is this place in South Dakota called the Black Hills. And there is this place in South Dakota called Mount Rushmore. We loved the destination of our vacations. It was what we looked forward to. We couldn't wait to get to the Black Hills of Dakota. Uh, once again, you probably mock us, right? Uh, the Black Hills of Dakota admittedly look a little bit like the drive to, to Hatchapi for you, but for us, for Minnesota, this was mountain territory. But the trip wasn't just great because of the destination. If we would have flown to the western end of South Dakota, it wouldn't have had the same zip to it as piling into my dad's beat-up Oldsmobile and thundering across the South Dakota plains. Uh, a matter of fact, if we would have missed the, the journey on the way to the destination, I would have argued that the destination wouldn't have been that great at all. Uh, what would a trip to South Dakota be, after all, without a stop at the Corn Palace? What would be a journey to the Black Hills be without wall drug and free ice water? What would a journey to the Black Hills be without the Badlands? And what would a journey to South Dakota be without day after day of Happy Meal droppings all over my dad's car? You see, the journey elevates the anticipation for the destination. And I want to take you on a journey. A few significant sights on our way to our most important question. And I want to take you on this journey to elevate the significance of the ultimate question that we have to answer this morning. So let's build up some anticipation with a few sites of significance on our way to the question of the atonement significance of the birth of Christ. But let's begin with the first site of significance this morning. Please consider with me the apologetic significance of Christ's birth for your faith. Consider the apologetic significance of Christ's birth and life for your faith. Apologetics is, is referring to arguments for the faith, the, 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 the quality of debate. It, it has great quality and debate to it. Notice, notice this. Because Christ was born and lived a full human life, that means that he didn't just appear as a phantom somewhere. And that means he became and remains to be a fully human man. He grew up in our skin. He was known as a brother and as a son. He had three packed years of ministry before multitudes. And, and these years were also eyewitnessed by at least 12 men at all times. He was known as a man. And as a result, when he died, he was truly believed to be dead. And, as a result, when he rose again from the dead, he was truly believed to be alive again. Matter of fact, he convinced those very same witnesses who saw him live and saw him die that he was alive so effectively that they became martyrs for his name all across the Mediterranean world. 
He appeared to these apostles and 500 other people over 40 days and fully convinced them of his life. And all of that is to say because of the human birth and full human life of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Christian faith, I would argue, is the most historically reliable, verifiable, respectable faith in the world. I don't think Mormonism can make that claim. I don't think Islam can make that claim. I don't think Hinduism can make that claim. I don't think Scientology can make that claim. I know, I saved the best one for last. Our Christian faith, because of our Savior's birth and life, is historically weighty and significant. It has apologetic significance. It's a glorious sight, but we must move on. Move to the next site of significance. Consider also... Consider also the prophetic prowess of Christ's birth. Consider also the prophetic prowess, strength of prophecy that Christ's birth and full life adds to your faith. If you didn't realize it yet, the Bible is kind of a promise-packed book. You can't read the Bible and come away with the conclusion that you know, the incarnation was kind of a, a last-minute idea, kind of a, a side thought a little bit. You, you can't read the Bible and come away with kind of a far-side theology. Oh, what? You people didn't like these laws? Maybe you'll like Christ, right? That wasn't what we see in the Bible. The Bible is a promised-packed book, even from the very first moments that sin is in the world, God is beginning to make spectacular and special promises to his people and and to us by extension. He, He makes promises that the deceiver would be crushed and the deceiver would be crushed in the head by the heel of a future deliverer. And then as you turn the pages, the promises just continue and grow and get greater and more vivid in their detail. God promises to re turn earth to a pre-fall paradise of joy and gladness and prosperity. God promises a kingdom on earth in this, this recreation of the Garden of Eden. God promises a kingdom on earth that is centered in Israel with the throne in it on which God himself promises to come and sit and rule. And as a result, the world has peace and justice. All of this, though, from the beginning, is, is dependent on the prophetic promise of a human Savior, a human Deliverer. If you're a Jew, a Messiah, an Anointed One. And from the very beginning of your Bible, God's promises begin. And they grow and they grow and they grow. But all through this human Deliverer. And just to make kind of an illustrative wow, if you are to read apologetic books, you see a lot of apologetic value to this as well in the prophecies of Christ. When Christ entered the world as a baby, he came in fulfillment, men say, of 600 plus Old Testament prophecies, all of which were made 400 years or more before his even entrance in birth. Christ came and fulfilled 600 plus prophecies. 
And, and just so you know, to, to even fulfill eight of these prophecies randomly in one small individual, some people have argued that you would have to, 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 to fulfill even eight of these promises, have the odds of one to 100 quadrillion. Those are pretty terrible odds that I would never bet on for a random individual to randomly fulfill eight of these prophecies. Now, I all, all, all to say, that is prophetic prowess. Your faith has incredible prophetic prowess because Christ came in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. But we must not stop here either. We, we must keep going. Another significant sight along the way that we must consider, consider also the pastoral comfort, the pastoral comfort of Christ's birth. Consider the comfort that comes to your soul as you consider who your Savior is today. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. I would say that here is the significance of Christ's birth to you today, this very moment. If Christ is not born, you do not have this verse. And as I read Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, I want you to try to follow the argument here. Note the conjunctions here. And get a feel for the significance of Christ's birth. Verse 14 of Hebrews 4 says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us take hold of our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things like we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need." Notice what we have here. We have Jesus presented as our great high priest. A priest being someone who is a go-between, between you and God in a sense. And, and we then are exhorted, and notice, exhorted in the strongest language, to hold fast to him as our great high priest. And then we are called also to draw near to him with confidence so that we can receive mercy and grace. In other words, we have strong assurance of finding mercy and grace from Christ because He is a human high priest. Why? Why such confidence? Why such assurance? Well, well notice here, notice here, we have great comfort, pastoral comfort in Christ Jesus because of the comfort of a conjunction. A conjunction, a very significant word. Notice in verse 15, for, the beginning of verse 15, for grounds the convictions of verse 14 and the truths then of verse 15 then lead us merrily to the confidence of verse 16. In other words, because of verse 15, you have verse 14. 
and because of verse 15 that leads you to verse 16. All because of a comforting conjunction for, or to say it this way, because he is a human priest who can sympathize with our weakness, we must hold fast to him. And because he is a perfect human priest who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin, we must draw near with confidence to him. Because he is fully human, we shouldn't shy away from him with our doubts and our concerns and our weaknesses, but we should gladly go to him. We feel sympathetic for other humans. You hear of people suffering around the world, and you have this inner reaction, desire, sympathy, urgency to help. But here we have a high priest who has attached himself to us, and even we are told in Hebrews 2 that he calls us brothers. How much more sympathy do you have for the person around the world that's suffering if they are related to you and connected to you? Christ sympathizes with us as our brother. Hebrews 5.2 speaks of the comfort of a human high priest because a human high priest has been given us by God who is able to deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself is beset with weakness. We have great comfort in this human high priest. And just a reminder, according to Hebrews 12, verse 2, this ministry that Christ now has at the right hand of God the Father is a joy that he was anticipating throughout the cross that he could be a great high priest. It says, Hebrews 12, 2, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This is a particular pastoral comfort that comes to you from the humanity of Christ. Going back to 4.15, it is his joyful work then to sympathize with us in our weakness in this way. It is his joyful work to receive us and give us grace and help to comfort us in our time of need. Now that's comfort, I would say. That's confidence, I would also say. And that comes through having a fully human high priest for us and for our sins at the right hand of God the Father. Now, just a few clarifications I always feel like I need to make. Number one, does this mean that God cannot sympathize with me without experiencing my weakness? That's really popular today, right? You you can't know what I feel. You can't understand my experience until you've lived in my shoe. Is that what we're saying about God? Are we saying about God that he is unable to sympathize us with us, therefore he had to become a baby and live a full human life? Is that the disastrous thing? We are concluding, no. God is perfect and complete in himself. He is not lacking, listen to this, he is not lacking in any good thing that We need him to be in himself. 
if we would suggest that he needs to be added to in order to be more perfect, that would suggest that he was at one point not God and not sufficient. Also, he is infinite in his knowledge, omnicompetent in his understanding. He knows all things perfectly, infinitely, and sufficiently by himself. So, so then why is the, the writer of Hebrews making such a big deal out of the comfort of having a human high priest who sympathizes with us if, if God doesn't need to know anything new about me? I would suggest to you, that God does this simply in order that you might feel more assured and more comforted in who Christ is. God has done this for you so that your faith might be strengthened, so that you might go to Him in time of need because you are compelled by his sympathy. That's first clarification. God doesn't need to change, but, but he helps us in our weakness of faith. Another clarification that we should make, does all of this mean that God is somehow soft on my sin? Does this mean that he is so sympathetic about my weakness, about my condition, that he doesn't really care about sin at all? Just come as you are. I'm happy with you. I'm sympathetic. I feel for you. It doesn't matter. You don't have to change at all. Is that what this is saying? No, not at all. Once again, 1 John 1 would tell us that God in His nature is holy. He is light, as John would refer to Him as. And in Him is no darkness at all. You cannot be in relationship to this God and have or hold on to sin. I would say, no, this is not what Hebrews is saying. No, his, his sympathy compels us rather to humility and faith and repentance because of his compassion, right? He, he says, come to me and flee from your sins because of the infinite mercy and grace that you can find in me. Christ is calling you in his humanity to repent and trust and hold fast to your confession of faith in him. Not to be happy in your sin, not to be comfortable in your sin. Rather, he is like that powerful older brother who comes alongside you in your weakness, in the weakness of your situation perhaps, but not in your current weak situation and is able to pull you out of the hole that you have stumbled in that is who christ is in his glorious comforting humanity but but we must not even tarry there because we have arrived finally at the destination that i told you we were going to make it to i want to consider also the atonement significance finally of christ's birth and his life for your faith the atonement significance i I hinted at this earlier but why did christ need to be born why did christ need to live a full human life why didn't he just appear on the cross well the reason is because the birth and life of christ is essential to the gospel message 
And I would once again say to you that without the birth and full life of Christ, you would not have the Gospel at all. Apart from Christ's birth and life, no Gospel. Now there's two very important ways that the Bible understands Christ's atoning work. By atonement I mean Christ's work in completing salvation for sinners. We could think about Christ's atoning work negatively, and we could think about Christ's atoning work positively. Let's, let's think about both of these to really explore the significance of Christ's atoning work. First off, negatively. Let's think about it negatively. In Christ's work of atonement on the cross, He takes on Himself what rightfully belongs to sinners like you. That's negative. See, He's, he's taking something from sinners upon himself. And we see this physically in his own body on the tree. He makes atonement through dying a painful, agonizing death on the cross. 1 Peter 2.24 Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, so that having died to sin, we might live to righteousness. By his wounds you were healed. Or 1 Peter 3.18 Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring us to God. Or Isaiah 53, 4 and 5, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquity. And the chastising for our peace fell upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Isaiah 53 paints this prediction of Christ as an Old Testament lamb fit for the slaughter. That is who Christ is. He is like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shearers is silent. So Christ is opening not his mouth. Now, one little comment here. I would say to you, and I've been reading through Leviticus in the morning. What, a, what better Christmas reading than the book of Leviticus? Um, I've been reading through Leviticus, and it just strikes me, as it always does, how the Old Testament sacrificial system was meant to be a very personal, emphasizing experience for the worshiper. The Old Testament sacrificial system was meant to get your hands dirty so that you would experience what is happening. So for, for example... In the case of a personal sin, the worshiper would have to bring a lamb. Not just any lamb, one of their own lambs without blemish. He would then, we see this again and again, somehow lay his hands on this beast. Now maybe, perhaps, it's suggesting laying hands on the animal, preparing to slaughter it. But a lot of people seem to think that in some way, in laying the hands on the animal, the worshiper is saying to himself that this creature now is representing me. 
And then the worshiper would himself slaughter the lamb. And then the worshiper would himself feel the blood, the lifeblood of the animal draining away. And then he would watch as the priest collects the blood of the lamb that he has just slaughtered and brings it before the altar and sprinkles before the altar the blood of this lamb. And then he perhaps would see the priest even pour out all the blood from this lamb that he has slaughtered before the altar. And then he would see and perhaps even smell the smoke of the sacrifice going up that came from the Lamb that represents Him for Him and for His transgression. And then the worshiper, believing in the Word of God, would say, I have now been cleansed of my guilt before God and my fellowship is restored with my God because... This lamb has suffered and died for me. Jesus is like that Old Testament lamb, but Jesus is also unlike that Old Testament lamb in that he is a perfect and complete human, a better human than any of us would ever be or all of us would be put together. And he is therefore the supreme substitutionary sacrifice for any human. In a similar way, we are very personal with the gospel sometimes, aren't we? Like when we come to the Lord's table, we are meant to feel things in our hands and in our mouth. We are meant to crush bread and remember for me and for my sin. We are meant to drink the cup and think for me, for me. Now this is all negative atonement and it takes Christ all the way to the suffering of the cross for our sin. Christ takes what belongs to you on Himself in His own body on the tree. But, and this is key to remember, this isn't This isn't the only way we should think about negative atonement. Christ didn't just take on himself physical sorrows and judgment coming to you from God, but he also took on himself spiritual judgment coming to you negatively for you and for your sin. Or In other words, there was more happening on the cross than just the Jews mocking, the Romans afflicting, the whips tearing, the nails piercing, the lungs collapsing, the body screaming. And there was even more going on there than just Satan afflicting Christ. There was also a spiritual judgment. And I just want to take you through just a, a, a speed cruise. And I'm, 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 this is going to be a speed cruise as you consider the idea of Christ from the Gospel of Mark. If you consider the Gospel of Mark, if you were to read the Gospel of Mark, say, this afternoon by yourself after church, it only takes you an hour and 30 minutes, you can do it, it's a very profitable exercise. If you were to do that through Mark, you would quickly notice several things about Jesus. First, you would see that Jesus is wonderful. His power and His authority in Mark are total. He heals every sickness. He casts out every demon. He calms every sea and storm. He can feed any crowd. This Jesus is wonderful. 
And you, and you also see very quickly that this Jesus, in the Gospel of Mark especially, cannot be troubled by anything. What a, what a wonderful thing, you, you think, walking away from the Gospel of Mark. What a wonderful thing it is to be with this Jesus of mine anywhere and in everything. He can't be troubled by anything. No storm, no demon, nor conflict with religious or political enemy troubles him. I don't know how you are after taking a nap, but I've been told that I am a small monster after coming out of a nap. Not, not a lot of self-control, not a lot of grace, not a lot of power, right? But Jesus, we see him with infinite power calming a storm right out of a nap in the Gospel of Mark, and then with a yawn, casting out a legion of demons. This Jesus, in other words, is wonderful. Nothing troubles him all Gospel of Mark long. That is, at least, until you find yourself in the Garden of Gethsemane. Then the Gospel takes a surprising turn and you you must stop and you must contemplate and you're asking questions what is going on the jesus i know is different now for some strange reason in in the garden in mark 14 33 you see him very distressed and and troubled and you see him in 14 34 say my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death why is jesus troubled not because of satan It's not because of soldiers. It's not because of any kind of physical death he's about to experience. We read in Mark 14, 36, he expressed something to the Father that is strange strange to us, and we're not totally sure how to take it. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. We get the sense that Jesus doesn't want to go through with what he's about to go through. Jesus is in trouble. Jesus is fearful even, you could say. What's going on here? What is this cup that Jesus does not want to take? This cup, I would argue for you, in the Gospel of Mark, is not the physical sufferings of the cross as much as the spiritual sufferings that God is about to pour upon Jesus in his hot and holy wrath. The perfect son who knew no sin is about to be made sin. And as we understand the Old Testament substitutionary sacrificial system, we understand that he is about to bear the full weight of sin before God on the cross. And you could look in your Bibles to the way that the word cup is used and come with this idea as well. God's wrath is said to be poured out in a cup metaphor. And the Gospel of Mark quickly refers to darkness on the cross. Darkness is another picture of the judgment of God. Darkness is not the the absence of God's presence, but if we view this through Israelite Sinai eyes, we understand that darkness is the holiness of God, the wrath of God, the judgment of God. And Jesus is about to drink the full wrath of God, and He is troubled. This is the only thing that troubles Jesus. As Isaiah 53, 4 would say, He is about to be smitten by God and afflicted. 
He is about to Himself bear our griefs and carry our sorrows. Now all of this speaks to the weight and the significance of the negative atonement of Christ. And all of this requires a body. A human body. A body that is immensely significant. But still, I would say that's still not enough. That's still not enough for perfect and complete atonement to be made. That still alone, I would say, is not enough to fully bring you to God. That is only giving you a blank slate. Now here, here we come full circle. Why is the birth of Christ and the, the full humanity of Christ so essential and so central to the good news of the gospel? It is because of something Christ did for you and did for me positively in atonement as well. Negative atonement, to summarize, Christ takes on Himself something that rightfully belongs to you. But we should also speak of atonement in positive language as well, where Christ gives you something that rightfully belongs to Him. You see, the good news this good news of believing the gospel of Jesus Christ is weighty and significant and even more significant than just saying that Christ bore my sin. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is also about you being placed into Christ. It's also about God imputing crediting all that belongs to Christ to you and declaring you righteous in Christ. And you stand before God, not in yourself, even in a perfect, blameless representation of yourself, but you also stand in Christ. That is good news. Not just blameless, not just spotless, but complete and righteous and holy and lovely and beloved in Christ. In Christ, you are brought all the way to God and received by God in the righteousness of Christ. You receive a full life a full life that Christ fully lived, credited to your account, a life that is said to fulfill all righteousness, that is put on you. And you receive a full life which is said to know no sin. And you receive a full life that is described even as the righteousness of God in Philippians 3.9. You receive Christ's righteousness positively credited to you because of the birth and life of Christ. God sees Christ's life and not your life. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. That's negative atonement. So that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. 
Once again, the birth of Christ, do you see it? It has monumental significance and importance to the gospel message. It gives, yes, your faith apologetic significance, prophetic prowess, and pastoral comfort. comfort. But mostly, do you see it here? It gives your faith also this atonement glory that you cannot escape. Yes, He was born to carry your sins and your afflictions, but He was also born to live a full and blameless and righteous life that is given to you. You could look at Romans 3, verse 23, and see. Without Christ's life and birth, I would still fall short of the glory of God. Just a blameless me is still falling short of the glory of God. I need positive righteousness to bring me all the way to God. And now, now this is the experience of the Christian that we particularly remember every Christmas season that wrath has been fully satisfied. And not only that, but also that we have been given a new status, that we belong to God as beloved sons and daughters, like Christ, whom God Himself said, with you I am well pleased. That is the glory of the life of Christ and its implication in the Gospel. This is why this is a wonderful time of year. For we count with joy and gladness and worship the holy night on which our great redeeming God came into the world to take our sin and to give us a righteousness not our own. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we thank you for this glorious time of year that fills our hearts with such weighty significance and joy. I pray that we wouldn't allow this season to pass without truly worshiping and not just moving through the motions, but truly worshiping you and thanking you and even finding opportunities to share this glorious good news with someone in our life who has not heard it. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.